That's Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what should we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we're being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Great, well my name is Matt Fuller, I'm the Associate Minister here, so let me add my welcome to you as well. And uh, as we begin to look at this uh, passage, serious passage, um, Let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus, we know that the labours of our own hands could never satisfy uh, the law of the Lord God. Uh, We thank you that you have done so. And so now we pray, uh, be we those who are yet to be persuaded of that or those who know that very, very well in our hearts. Please would you teach us more of what that means so that we would cling to you, trust in you, hide ourselves in you. Amen. Uh, Well, a few years ago, I did a a short stint at Sandhurst, which, uh, if you don't know, is the uh, Royal Military Academy where they uh, train British Army officers. It was a very short stint. I was there as a chaplain, really. Um, I wasn't, yeah, it was a very short stint, very unimpressive. I couldn't even qualify for the Vickers and Tarts course which I should have been entitled to qualify for. It was very short. But I did learn a few things there. And one of the things I learned was um, if you do the full course, 44 weeks to train to be an army officer, uh, the first five weeks are deliberately miserable. What they want to do in the first five weeks, you get all these slightly cocky, arrogant, testosterone-filled men uh, arriving, 
at thinking, you know, I've seen a few films, I can do a bit. And all they want to do in the first five weeks is say to them, that's all very well, but you need to fit into the British Army. You need to slightly lose your own individuality and join this group. You need to learn to do things this way. So that's what they're trying to do. So for the first five weeks, you're not allowed off-site. Uh, everyone obviously eats the same. You have to dress the same. Uh, everyone's room has to look exactly the same. You know, every drawer has to have the same things in your pants and your socks. Everyone has to have them in exactly the same place. You know, your, your shirts have to have the same number of creases in them. It's everything. It's designed to slightly, slightly grind you down a little bit until you get the point. You're part of the organization here. And at the end of five weeks, boy, are they desperate to get off site and uh, have a little free time. Now, I wonder, if you've been with us for the last few weeks... Have you got a bit ground down by what Paul's been saying? And we've spent a month now in this section of the book of Romans where Paul has been saying for a month, you know what? You're all hopeless. Spiritually, no one is righteous. Not a single person. That is, no one has a relationship with God. No one has a, good, no one has a right relationship with God. In fact, everyone, without exception faces an angry God, angry with their rejection of him. We've been hearing that for a month now. And you might be, I guess, getting a little ground down by that. You could be thinking, I'm a bit bored, actually. So maybe if you're a Christian and you think, oh my goodness, uh, I do know this now. I've been a Christian for 10 years, 15 years. I do know I'm a sinner. And it's just a little bit repetitive now. You could think that. Or you could be thinking, um, look, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. I've been coming along. But what is the problem with this church? I mean, okay, we've got a problem. Can, you, can we just get to the solution already? I mean, really, does this have to go on for quite so many weeks? Or you could be visiting tonight, and you're very welcome, and thinking, oh, I'm pleased I've come at the end of this bunch, and uh, I haven't been here for the last month. It sounds a little bit, uh, bit full-on. Well, you've got to ask the question of you, why... Why so? Why this book of Romans? Why has the Apostle Paul spent, you know, two pretty full-on chapters? Why have we spent here a month basically saying, no one has a relationship with God apart from God is angry with you and me. God is angry with all of us, naturally. Why take so long? And I guess the answer is, we don't want to hear it. It's hard for us to hear. We need to hear it again and again until it's really drummed in and we get the point that on our own we're facing an angry God. We need a gift from him, a gift of righteousness, a gift of relationship. We need the gift of the Lord Jesus sacrificing himself for us, which of course is where Paul is going. So uh, let me just recap then, if you've uh, been with us. Um, uh, then uh, chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, Paul has looked there at uh, what you might call a pagan man, a sort of deliberate, uh, an ostentatiously immoral life, and he said, you've rejected God and you deserve his judgment. Uh, then the first half of chapter 2, it's a sort of moral, upstanding, um, good bloke, 
Uh, and Paul says to him, well, you may think you're a bit better than the out-and-out pagans, but still you've rejected God and you're facing his anger. And then last week we looked at uh, the Jewish group in particular who Paul targets and says, look, I know you think you're better because you're the historical people of God and he's given you promises, but still the truth is you've rejected God and you're facing him as angry. Time and time again, Paul has really rammed home his message. You, you know, it might be a bit like this. Um, you could think of a, a very, very wealthy man, multi-millionaire. Uh, he's been feeling a bit dicky, uh, so he goes to visit his GP, has a load of tests, and uh, goes back and gets the results. And the GP says, look, I've got to be honest with you. You've got a terminal illness. Oh, right. Okay, well, what can I do? Nothing. You've got a terminal illness. Oh, okay, but, um, you know, you're not quite understanding. I, I can, you know, buy any sort of resources. You know, what can I do? Nothing. You haven't understood, I am wealthy beyond your little dreams, little man. Um, what specialist can I fly in from Geneva or something to help me here? There is nothing you can do. You're facing a terminal illness. That's the point Paul wants us to get. Okay, yes, I understand why God might want to punish some people, but actually I, I, I work hard at living a pretty good life. No, there is nothing you can do to earn a relationship with God. Right. But you don't understand. I'm actually uh, pretty good. Uh, I'm a decent, upright citizen, and I'm much better than some of the people you're thinking about. No. There is nothing you can do to earn a relationship with God. But um, I'm true to myself. I'm kind. I'm generous. Nothing. There is nothing you can do to merit a relationship with God. Nothing. This is what Paul is wanting to persuade us. He's, he's wanting to bring us to the point of despair before he moves on. Now, what we come to tonight, then, is this uh, uh, um, one group are not having any of this. So last time we looked at uh, how a, a sort of religious Jew might uh, respond and the complaints they might make. Well, that continues a little bit, really, in tonight's uh, passage. Uh, there's a bit of an outline on the back of these sheets. Uh, these last group, uh, uh, Jews of Paul's day, they're particularly upset. Paul has effectively said to them, look, your religion, it's not going to help you. It does you no good. And they're having none of that. So they've got a few questions that they want to ask Paul. Now, this is a sort of rhetorical device he's using. But he's engaging with the sort of ideas or questions that might have come against him. And again, can I say, don't think that was then. Because I'd, as I'd like to try and demonstrate, these sort of questions are the sort of things that people raise quite a lot today. They're typical questions that uh, religious people uh, might raise in objection to what we've been saying. So let me try and show you that. The first thing I've put there, the first question might be asked, uh, have we Jews got no advantage? Uh, verse 1, uh, what advantage then is there being a Jew? Or what value there in circumcision? Well, we, look, come on. Okay, Paul, I'm a Jew. I'm in the same camp then as these debauched pagans over here. Is there no advantage to my Jewish heritage? Well, yes and no. Yes. Yes, actually, there are, there are huge privileges. He's got a lot more to say about this in chapter 10, but there are huge privileges. Let me just give you one here, he says. Um, you've been entrusted with the very words of God. You've had in the Old Testament precious promises, wise and loving instruction. Yeah, that's great on the one hand. But on the other hand... In terms of your status before God, in terms of whether he'll naturally accept you, no, 
no advantage to your religion. You are just in the same boat as everyone else. So typically, uh, this is how this might get phrased today, uh, I guess. Some people would say, well, look, I'm a pretty upstanding character. I I pay my taxes. I'm faithful to my wife. I I give a bit to charity. Are you saying I'm no better off before God than that drug dealer and murderer? Well, yeah, I mean, yes and no. Uh, Yes, it is better to live a moral life. Yes, you'll probably be healthier If you live that way, you won't have to come before a court and a judge. Those are better things. But you're standing before God, whether he will accept you. No. No, you're no better off than the murderer or the drug dealer. Oh. Yes, says Paul, that's right. Okay, well, let's ask another question. Has um, has God been unfaithful to his promises? Verse 3. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? It's almost as if uh, uh, Paul's pretend uh, debaters, they say, well, funny you should mention the words of God, Paul, because in in the Old Testament, God promised that we would be his people. So he made a promise to us. Now, regardless of what we do, if he breaks that promise, he's not faithful, is he? Well says Paul, that's a pretty stupid argument. Or as he puts it, not at all. You can't get away with that. Do you realize what you're saying here? That's a bit like um, uh, an inmate at Wandsworth Prison saying and complaining, look, this is an outrage. I am a British citizen. The government promised to protect me and give me my rights. You can't just lock me up. Well, of course, on one hand, that is true. But you know what? When you held up the bank and beat up the the staff of the bank and nicked a load of money, another government promise kicked in, which is, we will judge you for your crime. And that's Paul's answer here. So he says that he quotes Psalm 51, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Basically what he's saying is that um, actually God made different promises, didn't he, in the Old Testament? He promised, yes, to his people, if you obey me, you'll you'll receive blessing. However, if you disobey me, you'll be judged. So all Paul says in response is, God hasn't broken his promises. He promised you blessing if you followed him and loved him and obeyed him. But he promised you also, if you turned from him, if you rejected him, he would turn and reject you. So God is still being uh, faithful to his promise to be just. Now, I guess a sort of modern-day equivalent to go something like this. Um, hold on a minute. I know what God is like. God is kind. God is loving. God is a God of forgiveness. Therefore, he can't judge me. Well, what you say is true, in part. He is a God of love. He is a God of forgiveness. But he is also a God of justice. So just like the criminal in Wandsworth Prison, you can't complain if justice kicks in when you break his law or when you reject him. You can't complain at that point. That third little question or objection that might be raised, and it gets a little bit more complicated here, but basically the objection is, well, look, how can God judge us when actually we're making him look good? Verse 5. If our unrighteousness 
brings out God's righteousness more clearly. What should we say? God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us. Do you see what he's saying? Okay, I commit a crime, but therefore the judge and the police punish me. Well, I'm just giving them an opportunity. It's just a chance for them to show that they're really right and just in judging. You can't, you know, I'm a good guy. Look what I've done there. Or think about it a bit like this. Uh, Jack Bauer. And um, it's hour 24 of a season of 24. And, you know, the plot is so developed, you have no idea what happened at the beginning. And certainly no idea, if you can remember what happened at the beginning, quite how you got to where you are now. Things have got a little bit convoluted since then. Lots happened, but there it is. It's it's hour 24, and things are about to get wrapped. And so there's Jack, and he's got the terrorists, and he's having a one-on-one with the terrorists, and he's got a gun pointing at them. And the terrorists say, now, come on. You can't be annoyed with us, can you really? We've made you look good. You know, our blackness has made you look white. You know... Look at what we've had, you know, we've got you jumping out of aeroplanes, you've been tortured, you've got to speak for several hours in a really husky voice like this. I mean, we've made you look good, Jack. Lots of people are watching you and thinking, he's the man. Now, had we not committed our act of terrorism, you wouldn't have looked good. Now, that isn't season seven, there's nothing, no giveaway there. But presumably, if that came up, he would say, no. No. Quite apart from the fact that every season of 24 I end up much worse than I do at the beginning, there's the fact you've committed these appalling acts of terrorism. You must be judged. I I don't want you committing evil so I can rectify it. That is utterly perverse way of thinking. You can't you can't really think like that, he says. If you applied that sort of logic, says Paul, God could never judge anyone, could he? He could never judge the people that you really hate. He could never judge the rapists. He could never judge the paedophiles if you went down that line of thinking. And so he ends up, verse 8, saying, look, if you're really going to argue like that, well, look, you deserve your condemnation. You're being utterly perverse. Okay. What do we take away from this sort of section, this sort of uh, these, this dialogue? Well, I guess if you're a Christian, one thing you could take away from this is uh, Paul gives us a method here. He says, "Look, you know, when people come with questions, you need to engage with them and point out the flaws in them. That is entirely legitimate and normal uh, way of speaking to people who aren't yet persuaded. You need to do that. I guess you could learn that. But the main point, well, the main point, of course, is here." We'll do anything to admit, sorry, we'll do anything to avoid admitting that we're guilty. All these sort of questions that are coming up are just objections because these people Paul's debating with, they don't want to say, yeah, all right, fair enough, I'm in the same boat. As I struck um, last year or getting on for a year ago now, I don't know if you saw um, uh, any of the final days of Saddam Hussein uh, before uh, he was executed. But he got pretty belligerent, uh, I guess, towards the end. And, um, you know, he'd go into court. Oh, well, for a while, he refused to even turn up. But then he'd go into court and berate everyone. 
and say, oh, you're lot, you're, this, is a, this is an illegitimate court, you're corrupt, you're corrupt, I'm the only true Iraqi, uh, you're a disgrace, you're a disgrace. And you go and just accuse and accuse everyone. Anything, rather than admit, yeah, I'm guilty. I don't wonder if that's someone here. Lots of objections, lots of objections. But they're really just a refusal to admit before the Lord that you've rejected him. Now, you may have very, very legitimate questions, and uh, certainly I'd want to engage with them. But at some point, is it right to just to admit? Now, look, I'm just trying to avoid admitting here. I, I do deserve God's anger. Paul's conclusion, no one is righteous. No one is righteous. Verse 9. Uh, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? No, not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Everyone. There's no exception. And then he strings together a, a list of psalms from the Old Testament uh, to really make his point. And it's pretty clear, isn't it? Verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. No one who does good. Not even one. No one. No one, no one, no one, no one has a, na- a relationship with God naturally. No one does what is right. Very striking. There is not a single person in this room tonight. Not one of us deserves a relationship with God, has done anything to earn a relationship with him. All of us, without exception, actually deserve his anger. It's a long list. Let me try and uh, pull out a couple of things. Uh, First would be sin's essence. Sin's essence, which I think you could sum up verse 11, no one seeks God. No one seeks God. Now that may be a surprise to us, no one seeks God. What is, um, what is the Muslim doing when he goes to prayer? What is the Hindu doing when he goes to his temple? What is John Humphreys doing on his self-proclaimed uh, quest to see if there is a God? Paul says, they're not seeking God. No one does that. Not one. Actually, he says, they're seeking their own glory. They're performing certain religious rituals. They're going through certain motions in order to make themselves feel good or in order to try and earn their salvation with God. And Paul says that's not seeking God, actually. Trying to earn God's favor, that isn't seeking him. That's seeking your own benefit and not him. Let me try and explain it. My favorite illustration is about 200 years old, so you've probably heard it, uh, by an old preacher called Spurgeon. He says, imagine this. Imagine a kingdom with a benevolent king, and he is a great king, a truly lovely, loving, servant-hearted king. Uh, one day, one of his subjects comes to him, and his subject is a farmer. And the subject brings, brings to him a carrot, and it's big. And so he says to the king, Sire, this is the largest, best carrot I've ever grown. You've not seen a carrot like this in your life, and I want you to have it because I think you're a wonderful king and I'm giving you my, my best ever carrot. And so the king says, well, well, thank you very much. I'll um, give it to the chefs and see what they can do with it. 
Uh, and, uh, well, that's very kind. I, I want to give you a plot of land. Where do you live? Oh, that's tiny. Have a plot of land next to the castle. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll do well there. It'll expand your business, and you'll uh, be a very successful farmer. Oh, wonderful, says the farmer, and off he goes. Now, looking on at this is a nobleman, a knight, who looks on and thinks, well, you know, farmer gives the king a carrot, he gets a strip of land. Oh, I could do some business here. Uh, so a couple of weeks later, he brings in champion, his prize stallion, and says, sire, I want you to have champion. He is the fastest horse in the land. There is none that can outrun him. I want you to have champion. It's my gift to you. And the king says to him, oh, thank you very much. You may go now. Well, he's a bit stunned. And uh, he starts to go, but he can't help himself. So he turns around and says, now hold on a minute, I've got to ask. You know, bloke comes in, gives you a carrot, you give him a farm. I come in, prize horse, you give me nothing. What's all that about? And the king explains, when the farmer brought his carrot, he did it for me. It was a gift for me. When you brought your horse, it was a gift to yourself. You brought the horse in order to gain something. The farmer loved me. You loved yourself. You weren't seeking my benefit. You were seeking your own. Now, do you see, that is religious thinking. The knight, the nobleman. That is what all religions do. They seek to perform certain tasks, keep 613 uh, laws in Judaism, uh, the pillars of Islam. They seek to perform certain tasks in order to gain eternal life. It is the moral, upright Englishman who says, if I, leave it, if I lead a decent life and pay my taxes, God will accept me. They're not doing it for him. They're doing it for their own benefit, for what they can gain. Paul says that is religious thinking. That is not seeking God. That is seeking your own glory. Because naturally, there are no carrot farmers. None of us do that. None of us pursue God just for him. We do it for ourselves. So no one seeks God. The very strong no ones. No one is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God, not one. And that's the essence of sin, not seeking God. That sin's outcome will be the second little thing to say. So if that's sin's essence, sin's outcome is no one does good. So verses 13 to 17, uh, Paul lists then uh, some of the uh, representative sins, some of the outcomes which come from our life when we rebel against the Lord God. A uh, great focus on speech in verses 13 and 14, uh, because uh, words destroy relationships. And that leads on to the conflict of verse 15, shedding of blood, ruin, and misery. There is no peace. Uh, and so Paul ends up concluding verses 19 and 20. Let me read them. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Do you see what he's saying there? 
God in the Old Testament gave his people a law, a, a list of how to live. But no one does it. See, the law is not a ladder you can climb to heaven. If you perform well enough, you'll reach heaven. He says it's not a ladder, it's a mirror, or that is one of its roles. A mirror which God holds up to our lives. So we look at God's law, how he would have us live, and think, I don't do that. I don't do, I'm nowhere near that. To bring us to the point where we say, no, I'm not righteous. I'm not righteous. Okay, let's take a step back. Uh, what is Paul doing here? This big long section, 118 to 320, uh, we've spent a month on it, him saying repeatedly, you cannot earn a relationship with God. Naturally, every person, the debauched pagan, the upright moral person, the strict religious person, you're all in the same boat. None of you is right with God. None of you can earn a relationship with God because no one seeks him naturally. We just seek our own glory. What is he doing here? Why does he spend so long? It is because he wants us to, to despair. <laughs> it's pretty miserable to say this, but you know, that's, what he, you know, that's the point. You get to the end of this section and you just think, Phew. it's not manipulative. It's just the truth. So let me ask you, and if you're a Christian... Uh, here tonight. Do you like me? Do you sometimes just, just take the Lord Jesus for granted? You know, you, you, know you're for, you know you're a sinner, but you know you're forgiven. And you just take that for granted and bumble along in the Christian life that way. Well, this brings me up short. Because I spend a bit of time reading this and think, actually, I am utterly hopeless. I, I'm not quite a good bloke who just needs a bit of a help. I'm utterly hopeless. I, I deserve nothing more than God's anger with me. Now, if you're a Christian, maybe like me, you need to just repent a bit uh, and recognize again how utterly dependent we are on the Lord Jesus. And if you're not yet persuaded, I wonder, are you beginning to see that? If you're not yet a Christian, are you beginning to see how you're so far away from ever deserving any sort of relationship from God or him being kind to you. You deserve nothing more than his enmity for rejecting him. Are you starting to see that and feel perhaps some of the despair that Paul wants us to? Because without exception, none of us is right with God. Uh, Schindler's List. Highly emotive, highly emotive film. There's a point in the film where um, uh, you know, Schindler, he's got all his workers set up in the factory. So um, uh, his, his workers, they were taken away to a concentration camp, but he uh, strikes a deal uh, with the, uh, the commandant and um, you know, the Ralph Fiennes character. And so his workers are set up in their own little work camp and doing their own thing. And they're all right. They're treated much better. And he thinks, well, this is okay. You know, we can run a war like this, and I, you know, I can save a thousand lives. But then all of a sudden, the orders come from Berlin, and before he knows it, that's shut down, and they're all shipped off to Auschwitz. And uh, he goes mad and nuts. And again, he has to, you know, he really pours out his fortune at this point and uh, manages to save pretty much them all. And they all get redirected to a, another work camp, apart from one train load. And it's all women. And so you see them on their way to Auschwitz. I don't know if you remember this in the film. 
And obviously, they're all, um, they're all utterly crammed in. And as they're trundling along the tracks, they, uh, they see people in the fields nearby just looking at them going, because they know where they're going, and they know what will happen when they get there. And so finally, it's the middle of the night, and, and they arrive at Auschwitz, and the, the, the cattle trucks open, and they pour out. Uh, and, you know, it's a, you know, it's a highly emotive film. Uh, but you see their despair. I mean, watching it, you feel their despair. They know where they are. They know what's going to happen. And they know there's no hope. Apart from there is one man for them. Uniquely qualified, Oscar Schindler, by his nationality, by his extraordinary wealth, by his influence in the party, by his compassion... So, of course, he, he comes in, and to the great consternation and surprise of the, uh, the, the guards there, he says, no, look, they're mine, and uh, he shows them his documents, and he's bought them. And uh, you know, to their great surprise, he's putting his arm around these women and, and taking them off, and uh, they're safe and secure. And, of course, you know how that film ends. It, the film ends, uh, and it's the modern day, and there are Oscar Schindler's grave, and the, um, the, the 1,100 lives that he saved have become about 4,000 with their descendants. Uh, and they all troop past his grave and put a little stone on it. Because they and their children, they know. They owe him everything. They'd been at the point of despair. They knew they owed him everything. We're one verse away here from God's solution to our dilemma and our despair. And we'll look at it next week. But now it's enough to know. There is one. There is one who is righteous. There is one who understood. There is one who sought God. There is one who never turned away. There was one who was never worthless. There was one who always did God. Sorry, did good. There is one who sought God. There is one who always feared the Lord God. And his name is Jesus Christ. And if you trust in him, he will save you. Now, if you know that to be true, how do you feel about him? Paul says, look, at, look in the face of despair. Look where you are, naturally. And now look at the face of your Savior. Realize what he's pulled you from. And honor him. And live for him. But if you've never done so, trust in him. And that's the start we need to make. What do you think of Jesus Christ? Bad news. It is pretty bad news, isn't it, to know that we're this bad, but also wonderful. I mean, more of this uh, when we get to the uh, next verse uh, next time. But the wonderful news of the gospel is actually, we are this bad. But if we trust in Jesus Christ, God still loves us. He still loves us, and he still delights in us, because there is one who is righteous, and we need to trust in him. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we heard sung earlier, uh, there's nothing in our hands we can bring. Uh, simply to your cross we cling. Uh, we come to you naked, and we need your grace. We know that the, the works of our own hands could never fulfill your law. 
We know that no matter how zealous we are, no matter how many tears we cry, they couldn't pay for our rebellion against you. You must save, and you alone. And we thank you that if we trust in the Lord Jesus, we know that's true, that you have saved us, that we're safe, and we need to spare no more because we know him, and he is righteous, and he served you and loved you and followed you and sought you, and we thank you for him and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.